Hey Mark, uh, Ross here with Christoph and Alessandra. Uh, well, thanks for having us on, Mark. We're so pleased to be here. Thank you as part of the fraternal order of uh, podcasters related to climate. <laughs> no, no. S- sororital? I want to include them too. Fraternal and sororital. Yeah. Fraternal Humanital? can mean human. <laughs> yeah, the, the human order. That doesn't sound great either. So this week's a bit special. And you're going to be hearing some new voices. Well, I'm Ross Kenyon. Uh, I'm here with Christoph Jospe and Alessandra Guerra. We work on the Nori podcast, uh, Reversing Climate Change and Carbon Removal Newsroom. Ooh, Mark, ooh. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for, for running an older episode of ours with Louise Edmonds. We're so happy that stuff is happening down in Australia. Thanks so much for your leadership, Mark, in getting carbon removal um, more at the forefront of all of this. Well, shucks, I I don't know how much I can claim credit for that, but I am a huge fan of the Nori podcast, and finding Nori in the first place was a huge inspiration for me in starting Climactic, so it's really cool to be able to host this episode, an older episode of Reversing Climate Change, about efforts to sequester carbon, to draw down carbon from the atmosphere using farming practices, and hear about how it's taking place right here in Australia. So Nori is not just a podcast company. Yeah, <laughs> it might seem like that because they're, <laughs> we spend a lot of time on it, uh, but there's more. Yeah, we think podcasts are a really important way to be curious, learn about whatever it is that we have to learn about, and find really impressive guests and share what we're learning with our listeners. But the core of what we're about is building a marketplace for pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. I feel like we should pass it to Alessandra, who's done this pitch so many times What's the 101 on Nori, Alessandra? Just make it fresh, okay? Don't, don't give them the old, tired version Jeez, of it. Jeez, guys, so much pressure. So we need to reverse our emissions. Instead of emitting CO2, let's get people to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Nori does not do that. But we're a marketplace that can get people paid for and get people to pay for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because philanthropy can move millions governments can move billions but only markets can move trillions and we have 1.5 trillion tons of excess co2 that we have to remove from the atmosphere that's very succinct totally and uh let's let's break it down you know there are different ways to pull carbon out and we're starting with regenerative agriculture because there are things that farmers can do today there's there's no new technology you really need to invent it's just like plant your crops at a little bit more diverse crop rotations, maybe add some compost. I'm sure you'll learn about that on this podcast coming up. Louise knows all about compost. Um, oh, yeah. She's the, the queen of it. Yeah. Just, you know, rotational grazing, um, introducing cover crops, all these great things. Low tilling, no tilling. Low tilling, no tilling. And so we're a platform that makes it easy for farmers to list, enroll projects, Generate a digital asset that represents one ton of carbon dioxide removed called a Nori removal ton. It used to be called a carbon removal certificate. Yeah, now it's the NERT. It used to be a Cersei, which I liked. <laughs> Had a little Game of Thrones vibe in there. 
Yeah, but what matters is that it's transparent, it's trustable, our methodologies are open source, um, it's easily verifiable, and the farmer gets paid, and that is really important, that the farmer can directly get paid through Nori and make a lot more than they might make in some other carbon markets while not sacrificing on the accuracy of the underlying claim. And what you said there, you started with practices and then we talked about digital assets that represent carbon. So just connecting the dots there, if you adopt all these practices that Christoph just listed out, then you can increase the soil health and quality um, of your land, which means that photosynthesis is happening in the plants and sugars get secreted in the roots and all the this organic matter, the carbon has to come from somewhere and it comes from the air. So it's carbon removal and storage, carbon sequestration. And that's what we're going to get farmers paid for doing. And it's not necessarily the reason why they might do it. They want to switch practices to increase crop yields, et cetera, increase soil health. Um, but why not help make this a uh, more financially sound solution for them and help them by getting monetized for the additional carbon removal? Yeah, so if you check out our podcast, Reversing Climate Change, there's lots and lots of episodes about soil, about uh, regenerative ag, but also we're, as a marketplace, agnostic to the means of carbon removal. So in the future, we'll be working with industrial applications as well. We like direct air capture. We're waiting for that to come down in cost for that tech to scale. There's a bunch of interesting stuff on the fringes of carbon removal that we're looking forward to seeing. So there's a diversity over there in, in Nori, uh, likes all of it. We need sort of an all of the above approach to make, I don't know, what a climate safe future. I heard, I heard someone say that today and I kind of like, like it. That, yeah. yeah. I like future proof too. Future proof. Nothing, nothing is ever really truly. It's like being 100% secure yeah. for digital safety. But like, come on, do it for the kids. There's too much carbon dioxide <laughs> in the atmosphere. We need to pull it back out. We have totally spent our budget. And so this industry is inevitable. We're just excited to be here at the beginning of it. I just love you're in a business where you can say, we like direct air capture. Like you can say, we like that guy for starting pitcher for next season or we like a certain brand of printer paper. That's just so cool. Yeah, Mark, I don't know if this is more than you bargained for, but we haven't even gotten to the, the origin story. <laughs> yeah, folks, this is an embarrassment of riches. Um, it's uh, definitely more than I could have hoped for, but it's not too much. Um, so yeah, just again there, what what's the history of Nori? How did it come about? Christoph, dude, make, make All right. this quick. I mean, hot, hot take is like, it's inevitable. We need a carbon removal marketplace. Carbon markets are very inefficient. There's a lot of friction. Uh, what happens when you can use blockchain and um, just get the carbon accounting right and transparent? And there was a fateful summer of 2017. Man, things were really going gangbusters in the blockchain space. And Paul Gamble, the CEO, and I were chatting and thinking about things that we were both really passionate about, which was markets and carbon removal and the timing was really perfect there was a hackathon basically a month-long business planning competition and i remember paul said to me this is great we want to do it i'm not i don't want to do this without ross and jason and i said this is great i know the perfect person to bring in her name's alessandra and here we are five of the six co-founders were working together and we ended up winning that hackathon and the rest is sort of history we're like there are a lot of different ways to remove carbon. Um, we should start here in the United States because we're an American company. We should build something which is hospitable for farmers because farmers haven't been able to access carbon markets and there's a huge market supply here. And I don't know, what am I missing? Would oh you... my gosh, the person, so you mentioned five co-founders and we're like, okay, we know that this is a good idea. We tested it. We're pretty confident and validated the data um, and the potential 
but we need an expert to do this. And so in comes in Alden Donnelly, our director of carbon economics and co-founder and just genius behind um, Nori's design. And she's been working in carbon markets for over 25 years and has helped um, create like the biggest buyers group um, in Canada for carbon offsets. The woman is just super knowledgeable and experienced and a problem solver. So she wants to help fix what we've seen in the past and make something just a newer version that's more uh, seamless and technological. <laughs> that sounds good. I think, Mark, we can talk about ourselves all day long, but I have a feeling that you're going to want to keep us moving. So I'm going to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Ross. So how's it going? How's that mission going and, and how's the company doing? It is good. It, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that one. So how is it going for Nori? It's been an interesting run so far. Christoph mentioned a hackathon that we tested that was two years ago, over two years ago. And, um, you know, startups, if you guys are not familiar with startups and the idea of lean startups is you got to be testing things. So we joined a three month long program, the Techstar Sustainability Accelerator in partnership with the Nature Conservancy, which is the largest global uh, NGO for conservation and it's been amazing and they caused us to think a little bit and not necessarily pivot but we did something new so nori's marketplace in general is focused on um you know we're a b2b company and we're trying to get other companies to pay farmers for sequestering carbon in their soils and all the additional benefits for that however that's tough to do because businesses are super risk averse and they have a lot of decision makers that they have to convince and so why would they start with this startup that has never done anything and except podcasts. Except podcasts. <laughs> exactly, Christoph. Hey, those are good podcasts. They are very good podcasts. And so what we did was out of this um, program, this business accelerator, we're like, well, let's let's do something cool. Let's do a, a demo and we get all of our podcast listeners and all of our newsletter subscribers and our followers and fans to help us show traction and help us demonstrate demand for paying for carbon removal in a marketplace like this. And we did that. We launched that a few weeks ago and it has been amazing so far. We've sold like 4,000 tons or pre-orders of tons of carbon removal by over 276 different individuals and organizations. So one thing that's really excited just to add is what we needed to do in order to make this demo transaction even possible is build an end-to-end -end platform that allows us to work with farmers, take their data, allow a third party to verify the data, and then convert that into a Nori removal ton, which is something that we issue. And so it's just really exciting to have gotten to this point. It's extremely validating. It means that we've integrated our platform with the form of carbon quantification that essentially is defined by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And we've built something that just makes it a lot easier on farmers who don't need to spend a lot of money up front on high verification costs or data entry. But here we are. We're learning by doing. It's real carbon removal that you can buy. And we invite you to join us on this journey. Yeah, it's a pretty good summation. I, I, I think I'm content no one asked me how it was going for me how's it going for you ross it's good <laughs> <laughs> so folks when people hear this if they go to the nori website if the lightning sales over um what do they still have to look forward to how can they be involved well i fear not um even if there's uh, no supply by that time or if you miss it because you listen to this a day after um, the the 7th, um, we are going to be launching another lightning sale probably. Uh, we're a startup, so 
we will test things and come up with new ideas and be super quick about it. Uh, We are considering maybe some subscriptions. If we can make that possible, that would be amazing. And then that way you can just have a monthly subscription that pays for and retires carbon removal for every month. You don't have to spend a big amount um, at the beginning of the year to do it. Um, There's a lot that we're considering, but if you have a good idea, please send it to us at hello at nori.com. Bottom line, there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. Humans need to pay for it, whether it's individuals or companies. And all we are is a marketplace that makes those transactions easy, transparent, and fair. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having us on, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity for us to run our mouths <laughs> and get published somewhere besides uh, our ourselves. So thank you. Uh, we're happy for what you're doing, highlighting so much activism uh, down under. Thanks for being a fan uh, and a friend. Um, we're happy to to have you as one. And please keep listening to this podcast because Louise Edmonds is really a mover and shaker and an amazing person to learn from. Yeah, and also Christoph asks if he's an eco-feminist without actually knowing, yeah, <laughs> which is one, one of the goofier moments on the entire show. We're very goofy. Well, you guys are goofier than me. <laughs> I think you can hold your own on the, on the goof level. All right. Uh, but thank you so much for, for listening and for checking out Nori, nori.com. Or if you want to listen to the podcast, you want to hear more of this, we're at Reversing Climate Change and also uh, Carbon Removal Newsroom. So thanks again, Mark. No, thank you, Ross. Christoph, Alessandra, and now to bring you on Climactic, this episode of Nori's Reversing Climate Change podcast with Louise Edmonds. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ross from Reversing Climate Change. I wanted to let you know that we have a new podcast called Carbon Removal Newsroom. It's short form, it's timely, and it's all about carbon removal. Whenever we see a good news story about carbon removal, or that should be about carbon removal, we're going to record a short episode about it with a rotating cast of guests. So please subscribe to Carbon Removal Newsroom, check it out in your podcast app of choice, and thank you so much for your support. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospay. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I am Ross Kenyon. Christoph Jospe is here with me. Look, we have a video camera on us for the first time ever doing the podcast, so we are excited about that. Yeah, we're still in Wichita. No till on the plains, finishing up now. Indeed. Carry on my wayward son, Kansas. God, God, you just had to find a way. (laughs) The last episode, he had to do the Seven Nation Army reference. And then Kansas got it this time. It did. Are you done? Almost. Almost. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, no till on the planes, learning a lot. We're going to talk a little bit about what we learned because we're here with another attendee who was there at the conference. She flew all the way from Australia. So if we just shout, Aussie, 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 she might just feel compelled to say, oi, oi, oi. Um, that, that basically happened the other God. day. <laughs> we, we try to be geographically sensitive, throw in references to help our listeners contextualize yeah. what we're doing. I don't think it works, but it makes us laugh a little bit. As noted, around 3 to 4% of our listeners come from Australia, which means 3% of our guests should probably come from Australia. So we've already had Charlie Massey. That was our first, and that was our second. Sitting here to my right is Louise Edmonds. She is founder of a company called Intuit Earth. She is also a composter. I look forward to getting into what Intuit Earth is all about and what it means to compost and why it's so amazing and everyone should be doing a whole lot more of it. And she's also been quite instrumental in 
building and sort of advancing a lot of the work that's really important for things that we'd like to see more of across the world, which is sequestering carbon and putting it in places that create value, like in the soils. And so we'll probably get into that too. Louise is a podcast listener, so she knows what she's in for. It's always great to have these sorts of guests and fellow travelers. So without any further ado, Louise, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are and the story of how you got to working on reversing climate change? Uh, well, it's quite a journey, probably about the last 20 or so years. It started in my first year of university. I took an, an elective called Ecofeminism. And I read a book by a woman called Dr. Vandana Shiva called Ecofeminism. And it was really talking about the similarities between the oppression of nature and the oppression of women. Um, anyone who has read or heard Vandana, she's a very erudite woman who explains things exceptionally well. And from that book, I really understood how oppression works all over the globe. Obviously, starting in developing countries, um, beginning with the Green Revolution and the oppression of people who are working on the lands, indebting them, stripping them of their biological wealth, biological diversity, and yeah, really destroying the environment and making them dependent on chemicals and genetically modified crops and so on and so forth. This is, this is Norman Borlaug's Green Revolution you're referring to? Uh, the Green Revolution. Mm -hmm. So are you familiar with the Green Revolution? Yes, I'm playing dumb a little bit in case the audience wants to learn a bit more. Okay, so the Green Revolution started after World War II when we had massive amounts of leftover munitions which formed the foundations of fertilizers. So we were like, okay, so what do we do with all these things? And so we decided that we would make fertilizers and that we would sell them to developing countries. Um, and those developing countries embraced the fertilizers and as a result of embracing the fertilizers in the early years saw massive, massive increases in yields. But over time that turned into soil and water degradation. And with that, they, for example, in India, there are certain varieties of rice that are three metres tall. And they're three metres tall because they have massive big floods that move past in those areas. So they need to be that big, right? But when we started using fertilisers and destroying the soil, those three metre tall uh, rice crops ended up lodging and on the ground. Is that the dwarf rice that people talk about? Is that what that is? And so these tall varieties, right, ended up on the ground because mm -hmm. we destroyed the soil and the roots couldn't penetrate to give them a proper anchor. Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning of engineering crops to be dwarf varieties, right, and the beginning of the loss of all of the genetic diversity in countries like India where there was, you know, thousands of varieties of rice being grown. And it turned into a monoculture with all of the, you know, lessened resilience, less diversity, things that we've talked uh, about a fair amount on the show. Ross, you are derailing Louise's story. I'd like to continue along. Um, <laughs> yeah, so <I'm> sorry. <laughs> you learned about the Green Revolution. You saw that we've been pillaging our earth of an incredible resource, um, which is the health of the soil. Mm. Then what happened? Well, I started to realize that, you know, what's happening in developing countries is also happening in Australia, right? So the wheat belt of Western Australia covers 200,000 square kilometers. We have removed 97% of the vegetation of the wheat belt. 
Um, and as a result of that, we've got a severely degraded environment that's turning into a desert. And the impact of that on the people who live in the wheat belt and our ecosystem in Western Australia is very significant. So the causes are all the same. And I, I was like, okay, you know, I want to do something about this. <laughs> and so it was a long journey. I, I started off by taking a course, a one-day course in biodynamics, and I learned how to make compost. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is exciting. And I got really obsessed with compost, made it everywhere in every opportunity I could, and I'd teach heaps of people about making compost. And it took quite a few years for me to make the connection between compost and soil. And then when I made the connection there, I was like, wow, if we have control of our soils, you know, if we're looking after them and we're taking care of them, they're taking care of us. We don't need the fertilizer. We don't need the pesticide. We don't need the bank. You know, we just need sunlight and, and healthy soil, you know. And so that's where I began to realize that that's the pathway to sovereignty for farmers, uh, rural communities, third world countries. And yeah, that, that's how I got into that. Yeah, you became a compost freak, sounds like. Yes. You're one of those people at parties, it's like, oh, God, I'm going to have to hear about compost again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> totally obsessed. <laughs> okay, so take take us through the basics. I mean, we both live in Seattle, where actually there's municipal compost, which means we take our food waste and put it out in a special bin. And I don't know where it goes. I know the city takes it away. It does, does something with it. But what are the different types of compost? What's the difference between people who might individually make their own compost versus the things that are happening at the municipal level? I'll just start with those questions. Oh, that's that's a very big question. Um, there is compost and there is compost. <laughs> yeah, how much time do we got, Krista? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, my focus is on creating aerobic compost. So, my learning started with Dr. Elaine Ingham, who you'd all be very familiar with, and I spent many years working with her her technology, and then now I'm working with Pfeiffer Luki technology. So it's aerobic compost, um, very intensively managed and monitored. It's exceptionally good quality stuff that, that gets great results in the field. So yeah, it's not just a, a whole pile of stuff that you mash up together and you just put it in the corner and you go, she'll be right, mate. Uh, it's that, a bit more complex than that. It was just like a garbage pile. <laughs> it did not work when I did that. It just smelled bad. It just smelled, yeah, it was an eyesore. <laughs> so that, that's not how you do it. No. You have to manage it more intensively. Very intensively, actually, yeah. yeah. So we monitor it every single day and, and that monitoring informs our management. And so, you know, a compost pile is a living entity. And we, we like it like a child that, you know, sometimes it wants milk and sometimes it wants food and sometimes it wants to sleep. And, you know, so we, we just have to look after it, how it's, you know, how it speaks to us. Mm -hmm. mm. Sometimes it puts on a tenter, temper tantrum and you can't really figure out why it's angry at you. Yes, I've had those experiences. Uh, okay, so then how does it get used? We we hear farmers talking about compost tea. So what what does that mean? Is that a certain way to apply the compost or like what what are we talking about here? What's the value of compost? So let's start with the we're talking about compost tea, right? So compost tea is usually um comes from the work of Dr. Elaine Ingham and what we're talking about here is a compost that is diluted into water and then we feed it and we brew it to grow the populations in that material and then we use it on our fields. 
It's quite distinct from a compost extract. So my focus, what I work on, is compost extracts. When we're using compost extracts, we liquefy the compost in water and what is remaining is all the microorganisms that are living, all the microorganisms that are dormant, spores of various different fungis. And we also have a whole heap of metabolites and enzymes and phytochemicals that are the byproducts of microbial digestion that are also stimulants for plants and and have disease suppressive qualities and detoxification qualities. So there's a lot lot in there. Um, And yeah, so, so I mainly work with extracts. Okay. So take us from compost to Uh, where Australia has gone in the last little bit of time. I know that there's been climate policy changes. You've been involved in the soil methodology side of things. God, this is a big question, I guess. What what was your role in it? And just generally, what's an overview of what Australia is doing for climate change and soil health? Okay. So in 2006, I worked for a company that was selling biodiversity carbon offsets under the Kyoto Protocol. I was selling those to multinational companies all over the world and that required me to understand a lot about the motivations for someone to participate in a voluntary carbon project. Then in 2007, I attended Dr Christine Jones' Managing the Carbon Cycle conference in Katanning in Western Australia and from there a whole heap of things clicked in for me and I really understood, wow, the power of soil. The power of soil to sequester carbon is incredible. So at that time, any individual could approach the Australian government and recommend a methodology. And so I approached the Australian government and started talking to them about establishing a methodology. And they really had no idea what I was talking about. And I'm like, going, oh, this is a little bit difficult. And then they started ringing me and asking me questions about soil carbon and soil carbon sequestration. And I'm going, hey, man, I'm not the expert here. This is pretty obvious. But like, I thought you guys would do that. Anyway, so I kind of went down a rabbit hole for quite a while trying to figure it all out. And then I thought, no, 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 this is a really, really deep rabbit hole. I'm just going to pull myself out of it. Now I'm going to sit and wait. So I waited 12 years until last year, the measured soil carbon sequestration methodology was approved by the Australian government. So what's really exciting about the potential in Australia is that we have a sovereign market. So the Australian government procures carbon credits to address its nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement. We also have a voluntary market that's emerging, and we also have a compliance market that's likely to grow significantly. So it's almost like an emissions trading scheme or a cap-and-trade scheme. We don't call it that, and most Australians are not aware that we have that mechanism in Australia, which is I find quite interesting. Um, so the opportunity is huge. It's really significant. There's a lot of very fun things to unpack there, and we could probably spend a whole podcast on each one of them individually. I think the way that you distinguished the three markets is quite important to both say there's a voluntary market, there's a national market, and there's a sovereign. And I think sovereign is important because, of course, climate change is a global problem. And all these countries came together in the Conference of the Parties in Paris a couple of years ago to come up with these contributions that they wanted to make. At the end of the day, still not enough. Uh, we need to do more, but it needs to be possible to monetize the addition of carbon to the soils because that obviously, or really any process, but here we're talking about soil carbon.
And now for a quick section of Climactic's Community Corner, where we play messages from the community. They can be announcements about upcoming events, job listings in the climate community, or really anything. Just send us a message to hello at climactic.fm and check out the requirements at www.climactic.fm slash community corner. Because we didn't have any this week from the climate community, I'm about to play you one from the podcasting community. Thank you to Ben McKenzie for sending this in. Hi there, Climactic listeners. Ben McKenzie here from Splendid Chaps Productions. We make Night Terrace, a sci-fi comedy audio series starring Jackie Woodburn, also known as Susan from Neighbours. Here's a clip where her character, Dr. Anastasia Black, has been taken into the future by her time-travelling terrace house. What exactly was our solution to the country becoming an unlivable wasteland? We couldn't just sit there and watch our country die. So we built a big spaceship and buggered off. You are standing on the starship Australis. Remember, surfing in the Harold Holt crewing tanks is strictly prohibited. Please enjoy your time on board the Starship Astralis. Get a dog up, you. I hope you enjoyed that little taste of Night Terrace. We're currently trying to crowdfund a third season. Find out how you can help and listen to our first episode for free at nightterrace.com. That's Terrace as in Terrace House. Not to get too political, but I want to pick up on this comment where you said like most Australians don't really know that this is actually in place. And also sort of there are swings to the left and the right and people maybe in the same way in the United States say, well, climate change isn't really a problem. Let's elect um, certain politicians who might think a certain way, which really potentially challenges things. So as this person who went down the rabbit hole and then the rabbit who sort of sat patiently and now it's all happening again. What was it that you had to sit through? What are some of the political forces that you're up against in these markets? And what is you might want to cool it on the uh, rabbit references in Australia. I know it's a sensitive <laughs> issue. <so laughs> yeah. You picked up on that, didn't you? Ross? Thank I, you. I ruined your comment. So please. you just had to state the obvious. Um, but okay. So right. how has the political climate in Australia changed over time? And what gives you hope? What gives you fear about how things are going from a policy side? Well, the political climate in Australia is changing every day. People joke that we've got seven living prime ministers in Australia. I think we've, I don't know how many prime ministers, we had four prime ministers in the last eight years or something. You know, it's crazy. And they, you know, they're constantly knocking each other off. And I mean, I'm kind of beyond government now, to be honest with you, because I see this globally. Way back when I was um, working in 2006 selling Kyoto Protocol offsets, companies were already all over this. They were already way ahead of the government and policymakers in Australia. Even today, you know, our, our big companies, we have this thing called the Carbon Disclosure Project, and under the Carbon Disclosure Project, they have priced in carbon. It's currently priced in at $18 a tonne. It's already on their balance sheet. You know, unfortunately, they've been waiting for leadership from the government to actually, you know, put that into place. But they desperately require that certainty for a whole heap of reasons. Investment certainty going forward, you know, 
some of these carbon intensive investments that are kind of sitting waiting, you know, they're waiting because we don't have this certainty. We don't know where, where we're going. You know, so in Australia, it's like causing chaos in our electricity market, particularly on the East Coast. And people probably don't realise that, you know, climate change and carbon and all of these things are actually what's creating this chaos and this lack of uncertainty that's stifling investment and so forth. So I do believe that the corporations are going to drive these changes. Although, you know, when did we get Tony Abbott? We got him in 2012 or something. You know, that was the corporations lobbying and, you know, you know, axe attacks and, and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just what? a circus. Axe tax? Axe the tax, the carbon oh, tax, oh, right? I axe attacks. I was like, yeah. okay, yeah. that's dangerous. Okay. Yeah, because we, 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 um, we did have a carbon tax in Australia for a very small period of time and the change of government, they repealed that. If we had have had the carbon tax, my God, we would be so far ahead of the rest of the world right now. Australia would be miles ahead. It was a very, very well-considered piece of policy that would have served us ex- exceptionally well. So it's it's a tragedy that we've lost 10 years, but we can make that time up again. I'm really hoping that we get really strong leadership from corporations to drive this because I think that's the only place where it can be driven from. It's not an individual effort that's going to get us across the line. It's a, it's a really big, it, we need lots of resources into it. What's the motivation for corporations doing this? Are they trying to front run legislation which might be more punitive than something that they might undertake? Or might they be able to have a good example for government to look to and say, hey, look, like we're already doing most of this. So if you are going to make policy changes, maybe use our model. Is it something like that? Is it something I'm missing? This, it's global. This issue is a global issue, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of countries in the world that are taking really serious action on climate change and they're really ramping up their ambitions in terms of their emissions reductions and to do that they have to change their infrastructure their technology they have to invest in clean technology and those companies are not going to be very appreciative of Australia's dirty exports landing on their doorstep and undermining their progression towards a zero carbon economy they're going to put taxes on our exports (laughs) it's like a a geopolitical trade policy angle yeah yeah absolutely that i'm completely confident that that's going to happen you know so we can either pay these huge tariffs or we can clean our act up and at the same time restore out the ecosystems of our country that desperately need that support well one comment that was made at this conference was around the innovation that happens on the fringes in extreme weather and australia unfortunately, has suffered from years of drought. And so it seems to me like a driving force sometimes for soil carbon sequestration might be, well, this is going to be good for me because I'll store more water and I'll become more resilient. How do you see that playing out? Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, adversity, struggle, debt, almost losing your farm, communities falling apart. These are all very powerful drivers for change. And, you know, when people are hurting, that's where the change is going to come. Yeah, we love speaking with people at soil health conferences because Nori is very appealing. There are so many reasons to care about the quality of one's soil and being resilient to weather events that they might not otherwise be able to sustain, like the amount of water they can take into the soil that helps them during drought times. There's a lot of really good reasons to care about this. And carbon policy is just maybe one thing that's tacked on top of that, that's an extra incentive in addition to all these endogenous incentives to do so. 
there was no question there. So. Uh, I got a question. I'll just pick up what you put down and say, as we were walking over here, Louise and I both remarked, well, it's funny, at this entire conference, a word which was not uttered once was climate change. Huh. Why do you think that is? I, I don't know. That that was my question to you. I, I, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we can we can sort of conjecture, whatever. Yeah, we have some theories on it. I think culturally, maybe some of the no-till space is a bit closer to conventional egg. Like if you go to a permaculture conference, oftentimes it's, I've met more like first generation people involved in that space, or they're committed to agriculture and soil for ideological reasons. Whereas a lot of the no-till conferences seem to be quite practical. And then that leads itself into broader conversations about soil biology and caring about these things. But it doesn't seem like I've met a ton of farmers at these conferences that start farming a different way for the climate. There's some sort of like an incentive, whether that's soil health or, or payments for uh, sequestering carbon dioxide, that is often more of a driver than some ideological commitment. Is that maybe a, a good place to to start there? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think it's Louise is giving the like no comment vibes and it's, it's just interesting. So, <laughs> I, but I, I want to go back to the, to this methodology that she built and sort of paint the connection or parallels between what Nori is trying to do and really just say like there's extreme synergy between really any market that's working to monetize ecosystem services and carbon sequestration because what the methodology and I'll let you say it because you were one of the sort of leaders of pushing it forward you can probably say it much better than I can and talk about how it works but what it enables is something that ultimately will empower a lot of what Nori would require. So even if we wanted to start in Australia, we're not there yet because the reference network of all the different soil samples don't exist in the same way they do in the United States, which is why we're starting here. But in a future perfect world, what we might be able to create creates one option of hopefully several options where you have a perhaps different voluntary markets, different compliance markets. Farmers, take your pick. How do you want to sell your carbon? If you're farming carbon, you can get paid. And the more soil samples are taken, we can predict with greater resolution. The more that we have various ways to reduce the estimation error from different satellite imagery or various techniques, it improves all of that. And so I just want to kind of state we're very much on the same team and very keen to see this roll out as quickly as possible and be able to support it. But could you kind of, and to put it in your words over, over dinner, when we connected, you're saying, well, it's extremely thorough and very complex. And so I'm going to challenge you in as simple terms as possible. Can you explain how the methodology works? Yeah, well, it's a measured methodology, which means that we begin with a baseline and we test the soil in the paddock and then after a few years we come back and we test it again and you get paid on the increases, hopefully increases, <laughs> in soil carbon sequestration that you achieve. There are some pretty significant obligations to participate in such a program. Um, you have to maintain the permanence of that carbon in the soil for a minimum of 25 years and in some cases up to 100 years. So, you know, it's a very significant undertaking uh, with some pretty detailed legal structures sitting behind it. So, yeah, we're taking it pretty seriously in Australia. Good. 
as one should. Um, <laughs> I hope you're not implying that Nori's not. Um, but no. <laughs> talk, 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 talk to us about the rollout. He's very, um, he's very sensitive. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Hair trigger. <laughs> so how, how how is this going to roll out? You said you know you waited, and now 2018 things are finally happening. So what can the world look for, and where? Where can we sort of watch this unfold? Well, we've uh, developed a pilot project, and that pilot project will engage 20 farmers in each agricultural region from uh, Geraldton to Esperance. So we're looking at about 60 farms across that area over a land base of about 240,000 hectares. So it's, it's a pretty big pilot. And so then, you know, once we enrol those people, we, we do the baselining and off we go. But, but I think the really important thing to appreciate about these kinds of projects, and in particular in Australia, you do need to have a degree of scale for them to be viable. So if we were to attempt to do this with just one farm, it would cost us four times what it costs us to do it at this larger scale. So that's really a critical component. Another component is that the change is quite significant. And, you know, the, the social and cultural norms that have been dominant through our agricultural practices and our agricultural communities are hard to change because of all these, these social pressures. So we really need to support farmers as human beings, you know, who have a whole heap of belief systems and ways of looking at their farms and, and things that, you know, have kind of led to the problem that we're in, you know, changing that's not a small undertaking and it's it's a really it's a community and it's a people process so um, we've built very detailed extensive support networks around farmers to to help them with that really glad that you're talking about the sort of changing the management practices and the education that goes along with it which is a core component to seeing lasting and systemic change and it's kind of the perfect segue to talk about one of the organizations that you founded which is Intuit Earth Yes. So how does that work and what do you do? Okay, so uh, Intuit Earth, uh, in this program, Intuit Earth um, has designed a four-year program of education and training for farmers that's delivered by experts from all over the world. In fact, uh, there are a few people who have been teaching here over the last few days that will be joining us in Australia to, to deliver various elements of the program. We've also set up a structure that enables us to embed these new paradigms, these new ways of doing things, this new knowledge into institutions within rural communities, right? So, you know, having extension agents and, and peers in the communities working directly with them and also the farmers in that community. So, yeah, that, that's a big part of what Intuit Earth does. As well as everything else, um, you know, <laughs> doing all of the baselining and setting up the programs and, you know, finding the buyers for the credits and, yeah, the whole thing. So, yeah, it's a cradle to grave kind of approach to this business. I'm very, I don't know, do you want to dig into the, some of the nerdy details of baseline generation? I'd like to hear about the kind of data you're getting for the soil, how much it cost? How do people uh, verify under this regime how much carbon is actually going into the soil? Or is this a derailment and you prefer to go somewhere else? Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about how you're figuring out how much carbon is going into the soil? Yeah. So we take soil samples down to one meter. So we, we've got a, you know, we've got a big bucket that we're working with here. Yeah. And then those soil 
samples are tested in the lab to determine what values we get. So uh, this is at the start, right? At the very beginning, yeah. Okay, and then you're determining. Yeah, maybe maybe you should just tell me more before I jump in. And I can put it in English for you. So you scoop it up, burn it down. What's left over is the soil organic carbon, correct? <laughs> yeah, something like that. And, yeah. And you're are you developing uh, a baseline like by farm or or is it something like that's regional? Each farm. Each farm. Okay. Yeah, each farm. Each paddock. Each paddock. Yeah. Which is a field, we might say, or, or is the term different in some way? Well, technically they're called carbon estimation areas and mm -hmm. carbon estimation areas are t defined by soil types and topography mm -hmm. and, you know, how that paddock is used, whether it's, uh, you know, it's wooded or whether it's a pasture or whether it's a, uh, a cropping paddock. So, yeah, and that's all very, very technical stuff, which is beyond me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of statistics and maths and, you know, yeah, it's very complicated stuff. Okay. So you, you um, actually do soil testing at the beginning. Yes. Are you doing soil testing throughout the duration of these contracts and yes. their participation? Yes. Yeah. What, what's the size? Like for one of these tests, how many acres does this cover? Or like how big is the carbon estimation area? Yeah, that's defined by the soil types and, and uh, what's uh, happening on that particular piece of land. So that's, it's unique. It's, you know, we, we don't just like, you know, get a grid and put it over a farm and go, okay, this one, this one, this one. It's like, bit more complex than that. Yeah, so it costs us about um, over an eight-year period, it costs us $24 a hectare to do this baseline testing. So it's it's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, we, we've kind of, you know, at, on very conservative modelling after our expenses, if we achieve a two-tonne carbon sequestration per hectare per year, we could be profiting something like $50 per hectare, which is very significant for a wheat belt farmer. Yeah, I've heard, isn't it something like $30 a pop for soil tests in the United States? So, It it depends on what soil tests we're talking about and how rigorous they're done and what else you're testing for. Uh, so it's not quite that simple. Um, uh, yeah, we were talking about this over dinner the other day about because you know, our model, we, we lean on Comet Farm to make estimations and then we ground truth at the end of the 10-year period how much carbon actually went in. So we don't rely nearly as much on soil testing, though I would predict, and Christoph can correct me if I'm wrong, that the price for soil testing, especially with an incentive like in Australia or under Nori or any other carbon system, there's a pretty good business case to be developing inexpensive, reusable, novel ways of testing soil carbon. And I think more will come, right? Right. And as, as I alluded to, in the United States, there's quite a strong reference network of different soil types, which is why we're so keen on the approach that Louise is advocating for, because it will naturally develop that reference network, which improves underlying models to enable the estimation of soil organic carbon. So it's kind of like the more tests, the better. And also, indeed, we are having a full audit at year 10 we would certainly welcome additional data from soil tests that farmers might do. And oftentimes farmers want to do soil tests because it's giving them more data on how to farm better. And so it's kind of like you're paying for things not for the carbon benefit, but because it's helping you make better economic decisions. And so it's really nice to think about, well, if you're going to do that anyway, how can I tack on to improve and reduce the estimation error? Sorry, I might have just filled in the gaps and then destroyed any question that you had. So Ross, I'll pass it back to you. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, well, where do you see this going in the next couple of years? You have a, a pilot ongoing now. I'm sure you'll learn a lot as any pilot one hopes to learn a lot from. And then where, where would you like to see this project go in the next five, 10 years? 
Well, um, our mission is to regenerate the wheat belt of Western Australia. That's a pretty big landmass. <laughs> how, how, how big did you say it was? It's 200 square kilometres. 200,000 square kilometres, sorry. So it's, a, it's the size of the UK. Yeah, yeah. and it's a it's a magnificent landscape. The, the biodiversity in the wheat belt prior to being cleared is just phenomenal. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, and it has so much potential to support us, you know, for employment, culture, and I'd like it returned to its glory. So let's take it full circle with your compost obsession. <laughs> <laughs> How much compost will be needed for that two hundred thousand square kilometer area? Well, you know, that's that's a great question because a lot of people say, oh, well, Louise, you know, you're never going to be able to make enough compost to deal with the wheat belt. <laughs> and, um, and, Challenge and, accepted. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a really concrete example of farmers that I'm working with that are actually using the compost. So these farmers are uh, in, you know, fairly marginal area in the wheat belt of Western Australia, that Ian and Diane Haggerty, who uh, I think Charlie Massey might have referred to, and they are cropping 13,000 hectares, right? It's a lot of... That's a big piece that's of property. A, that's a big property. Yeah. And they use about 30 tonnes of the compost that I manufacture for their entire program over 13,000 hectares. So a little bit of really good compost goes a really long way. We don't have any tr problem with that. We've got plenty of compost to do this job. That's amazing. I think we should start concluding. We have to unfortunately run off to another event here soon. Otherwise, I'm sure we could spend a lot of time together, Louise, and I hope we do in the future. I wanted to ask you, um, it sounds like the book or the author you referenced at the beginning, is there... Uh, foundational text one might want to read if they wanted to get inside the eco-feminist uh, headspace. I'd be personally interested. I'm sure our readers, our, our listeners are readers, I, or they just get book recommendations from us constantly and it's overwhelming. Sorry. So <laughs> but what's, where's a good place to start if, if they were to learn about that? And maybe, maybe uh, some other book that you might want to recommend. Yeah. Well, um, Vandana Shiva, uh, she's a well-published author. She's written lots of really, really great books. She's a fantastic speaker. Um, you'll find stuff from her all over the place. So, um, yeah, she's pretty pretty easy to access. Okay. Is it possible that we're eco-feminists without knowing it? And if not, what can I do to become one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, oh, I always get a little bit like, oh, don't use that word feminist, Louise. <laughs> it's like that's dangerous territory. <laughs> um, I don't consider myself to be a feminist, and that's not really the foundation of what I'm about. I mean, there's, there's just similarities between the oppression of nature and the oppression of women, you know, and you can, you can make those, those connections quite easily. We need to change our relationship to the land, you know, and, and I, I don't like making these things masculine or feminine, you know, we just got to nurture the land and nurture ourselves and nurture each other. And that's really what being human is about, I think. And if we can get into that essence, then we might have a future on the planet. That's a great sentiment. I can't imagine anyone would could even possibly disagree with that. If you do, feel free to write to us at hello at nori.com. <laughs> feel free to criticize the way we do our podcast, us personally, the way we look in this video. Hello to our Australian now video viewers. Thanks for being with us, Louise. We, we want to speak with you a lot more. We think you have a lot of knowledge. You've been so involved with soil carbon methodology, and, and we'd like to continue the conversation off the air and uh, continue collaborating as much as possible. And I'm just excited. I 
want to give a shout out again to the internet as a great way to connect people. I met I met Louise through LinkedIn and it's it's really a fabulous tool. Not trying to promote LinkedIn, but it if you know what you want and you know who you're looking for, um, it's really valuable. And I think those who have the entrepreneurial spirit want to roll their sleeves up, get things done, share best practices, do things, try them out, find the others who are doing things slightly differently and say, okay, what can we all learn from each other? I think there's a lot of common ground and the world needs it a whole lot more, a whole lot more quickly. So that's my challenge to you listeners. Find what you're passionate about, share it with other people, find others working with it and build this broad community. Louise, we like to sort of give our guests the final word. So feel free to take us home. <laughs> well, I, I just like to say that I'm like totally amazed with what many of the farmers here are doing. It's incredible stuff. And like taking these stories back to Australia, like people are going to go, no way. There's no way you can grow a crop without fertilizer and without pesticides and without herbicides. And no way you can outbeat beat a conventional yield. And these guys are doing it like in a big way. And they're loving it and they're passionate about what they're doing. It's very exciting and I, I just love to be able to bring some of that energy and enthusiasm and passion back to Australia. So it's um it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Yeah, they, they really are optimistic at these conferences. I imagine some uh, farming conferences are quite dour in comparison. They're optimistic and creative. And uh, Christoph and I try to shut up as much as possible while we're here. We call it listening tours, try to just observe and, and uh, fit in as much as possible. We always, I don't know, I get a lot out of these every time. I'm sure we'll continue going. But thanks for being here, Louise. If you like the podcast, please review it, share it, give us a good rating in your app, subscribe to our newsletter, go to nori.com, get involved for free to drop us a note at hello at nori.com. What did I forget last time that you chided me and jumped in on? Subscribe. Oh, and subscribe. Please subscribe uh, and help us grow. And uh, thank you, Louise. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'd like to say thank you to Louise and Christoph and Ross and Alessandra for letting us play this episode on Climactic. Now, I'll make my closing remarks brief. Melbourne's pollen season is well and truly underway, and I'm feeling it. So I just wanted to say on behalf of Louise, who I spoke to just the other day, her venture is proceeding quite nicely. And she expects to have good news to share at the end of the year or early in 2020. She is currently advertising for a soil health officer role. You can find a link to this role in the show notes, and I highly recommend checking it out. And if you think you have someone in your network who fits the bill, please let them know. Soil health, soil carbon, carbon sequestration, and ultimately reversing climate change are things we want to focus on a lot more on this show. So if you enjoyed this, we'd love it if you'd let us know. And if you have some ideas on stories happening in the community, people doing good work, please let us know that as well. And if you can help us bring those stories through interviews in your area or introductions to the right people, we'd greatly appreciate it. Just get in touch with us at hello at climactic.fm. Thank you so much for listening this week. I've been your host, Mark, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. 
We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.